Hello and welcome to the April DCM podcast. My name is Tom Lanay and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast via your chosen podcast app. Before I introduce this month's guest, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to our five listeners or one person who's listened five times in San Salvador, the capital of El Salvador. Uh, Whoever you are, hello or hola. Um, We also had three listeners from California last month, two from Massachusetts, one from Georgia, one from Texas, and one from Australia, Melbourne, Australia, and one from Budapest in Hungary. This podcast really does have, it would appear, an international listenership. So fittingly, I'm joined by an international man uh, of mystery, uh, Mr. Phil Clapp, who is Chief Executive of the UK Cinema Association. Hello, Phil. Hi, Tom. Hi, everyone. The UKCA represents the interests of around 90% of UK cinema operators and includes single-screen, owner-managed sites, as well as the largest circuit and multiplex operators. Phil is also president of the International Union of Cinemas, also known as UNIC, who represents cinema exhibitors in territories accounting for some 33,000 screens and 1 billion annual admissions. That sounds like a lot. Phil, would you say that's a fitting description of your role? That's a, that's a good summary of my role, yes. So I head up the UK trade body, representing cinema operators, and I'm also president of the trade body representing European cinema operators. Now, we have to kick off the podcast by discussing the Q1 uh, admissions results. They came through last week. It has been a great quarter. March has been the busiest March, we think, since 1971. Q1 is the second biggest, busiest since 1971. It's been a remarkable start to the year. What do you put that down to? I think I think it's a number of things. I mean, we're already on a, a almost a kind of momentum coming through from from the end of 2016 with Fantastic Beasts, Beasts and Rogue One, and a number of other films. We always see a boost from what you might call the award season films, which has certainly come through this year. But we are also seeing a trend which is really, you know, kind of taking place over the last decade or so, whereby almost summer begins in March, to be perfectly honest. There used to be a rhythm to the year, which was uh, the award season would be the start of the year, and then it would go quiet, and then we get to spring, and, and some films would be released, and then summer was hell for leather, you know, blockbuster after blockbuster, and then it would go quiet, and then we begin the run-up to the awards season again. To be honest, the rhythm across the year now is, 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 is it's not quite flat, but actually, you know, there's a much more regular flow of high-quality, audience-pleasing content. And, and really, you know, March with Beauty and the Beast and Logan, uh, you know, we see no let-up uh, in terms of the quality of the film slate right through to the autumn and maybe through to the end of the year. So it's a combination of things, but undoubtedly the sector as a whole in the UK is on a high at the moment. I think you're right in that big films are now coming out. I think exhibitors are, uh, sorry, distributors are putting their big films in times where we probably would have had um, the smaller films being released. They are less reliant on weather. When you come, if you release a big film in March, it's not going to have a problem with the sunshine. Uh, do you think that's something we're just going to see more and more over the coming years? I, th- I think you know it, it's something which a number of studios have been quite brave initially in doing in in dating films at times which previously were left you know quite empty. So 
so for example, Warner Brothers increasingly pushed films towards the Christmas period, you know, Sherlock Holmes and, and others originally, and, the, and then followed through with, with Potter and now with Fantastic Beasts. And you see, you know, companies like Fox, you know, dating Logan really very early in the year, uh, but getting a, a clean run on audiences, frankly. And so it, it's both around actually, I think, you know, trying something new, but it's also about being conscious that you're not then cannibalizing audiences. You don't have a situation whereby the audience is asked to choose between two or three big films in the space of a very short period of time. And how do you see the rest of the year panning out? I, I, I think, you know, if I compare it with last year, last year we had, I think what you would say were moderate expectations at the beginning of the year, and we, we were pleasingly surprised by what ended up being a very good year. Um, without tempting fate, I think the expectations for this year at the outset are, are very much higher, uh, and we're probably already exceeding those expectations. And we look forward over the summer to a whole range of blockbuster titles and then through into the autumn as well. So I, I think, you know, we, we have uh, very high expectations of, of, of big box office, big admissions, and uh, maybe, you know, a platform for further years in terms of pushing audiences on in a way that we've always wanted to do but never quite achieved. Well, I mentioned at the start the incredible Q1. Admissions were up 11%, which is an r- incredible number. Mm-hmm. And if we can continue at that rate, we we'll see the highest admissions we've had this century. Do you think that's a realistic possibility? I think it is. I think it is. And I think it's the result of a number of things. As we've already mentioned, a more spread out film slate. Uh, To be perfectly honest, I think uh, a number of studios are really operating at the top of their game uh, this year. You know, the obvious candidates like Disney, but Warner Brothers have got a very strong slate, Universal and Fox, uh, and even Sony and Paramount, who've probably had, you know, more challenging years in recent times, are coming back into the mix. But it's also the fact that there's massive investment in in the cinema infrastructure. You know, so members of my association, uh, the the big operators like Odeon have announced very ambitious plans for refurbishment. Viewer doing the same. Cineworld invested massively. And then there's the emergence of that tier of what you might call kind of boutique cinema. So every man, Curzon and Pitch House are probably the best known brands, but actually more local cinema operators investing in uh, sofas or recliners, uh, higher end food and beverage offer. So what you're seeing now is a cinema offer which appeals to a broad range of audiences and we're able to draw on that much more effectively than we were able to previously. So as I say, you know, I, I think the cinema going experience with an emphasis on the word experience is as good as it's been in many decades and do you get to see many films um i get to see not as many as probably people would expect Uh, i probably go to the cinema once a fortnight maybe maybe two or three times a month um i'm lucky enough to be a member of bafta so at the end of the year I, i i get to see a large number of the the award season films before they're released. But you also, obviously, you know, you, you brush shoulders with lots of people in the industry, so you get a feel of, of, of the strength of the slate, even from films you've not seen. This podcast will hopefully be going live on the day that Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is released. I know that you have seen this one. Mm-hmm. Do you want to just give us a quick capsule review? Okay, I mean, I, I will say, you know, clearly when Guardians 1 came out, it was a bit of an unknown quantity, and, and, and it struck a chord, I think, with its irreverence, with its humour, uh, and with the fact that it wasn't, brackets, just another superhero film. 
uh, this new new this new film is is more of the same, and I don't say that in any way as a disparagement. Actually, you know, I think it's pushing the envelope in terms of what a superhero film will be. It adds some new characters, and and the audience that I saw it with absolutely loved it. To be perfectly honest, so I think it's going to be big box office. I think it's going to uh, attract a broader audience, even maybe than the previous film did. And again, it's it, you know almost impossible to to segment the film from the soundtrack. And I think you know again what. Guardians has show, Guardian has shown. Guardians has shown is that ability of the soundtrack actually to drive an even broader audience for a film than people who are just attracted by the film itself. And what are you looking forward to to the rest of the year? Um, I think Alien Covenant promises to be uh, a return to form uh, and a return to being um, scared out of your chair. Frankly, I think Blade Runner twenty forty nine. All I've seen of it suggests that. Denis Villeneuve, who's, who's coming in as director and clearly has very big shoes to fill, has brought an additional aesthetic and, and, and um, uh, an additional tone to it o- over and above even the classic original. But, it, the, you know, one of the things it's perfectly possible to do is almost, you know, every week or two weeks through the year, pick a film that you will quite happily go to see, quite happily talk about, etc. And, and, you know, and that's been a trend of the last two or three years, I think, is actually not just the number of films, but the diversity of films. And, you know, even, even if one or two of them, as is inevitable, don't quite hit the mark, you can be confident there'll be another film coming along quite shortly, which will absolutely do that. So I think that gives audiences comfort and, and confidence in terms of their cinema going. But clearly as a business, the cinema sector, it gives us great confidence as well. And I will just add that I bought my Alien Covenant ticket today. Excellent. Excellent. Seeing it in IMAX, I cannot wait for that one. Now, let's talk a little bit about your background, because Mm -hmm. you have a fascinating background. Uh, You studied chemistry, I believe, at university. I did, I did. And you have a PhD in inorganic chemistry, is that correct? I do indeed. I have a PhD in oxygen chemistry, of all things. How does someone with that background end up as the doyen of the UK cinema industry? I don't think anymore there are traditional career trajectories, uh, and, and I think I'm probably a good example of that. So, uh, as you say, I, I studied chemistry and, and I followed that path as a, as a research scientist for a while. Uh, and then I, I think both I, did, I, I fell out of love with the job, and probably the job fell out of love with me sometime in the early 90s. Uh, and, and for those of us who were old enough to remember the early 90s was one, probably the last but three economic downturn. Uh, and the jobs market wasn't great. So, so I, I sought safe harbour in the civil service, uh, which is always a good banker, or actually always was a good banker, it's less so now. Um, and, and then through a series of kind of happenstance and luck, I ended up um, latterly at the end of, at the very beginning of the 2000s, um, heading up uh, what's termed by government creative industries policy for the government. So that's film, music, computer games, fashion. Bizarrely, if your viewers, if your listeners could see me, they'd know that was... Um, uh, a slightly opposition. Phil is a snappy dresser. Ah, uh, yes, exactly. Don't yes. let anyone else tell you it's otherwise. The cro- it's the crocodile shoes. Um, but, and, and then through that job, I actually came into contact what, with what was then called the Cinema Exhibitors Association, representing uh, cinema operators. And, and I had a number of engagements with them. And, 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 you know, I was very intrigued by, by cinema as a sector. I'd always loved film, but very intrigued by cinema as a sector. They were clearly intrigued by me, for good or ill, by what they saw. And, and when the, the role as head of the, what was then the CEA became available, I applied for it and was lucky enough to get it. And that's, that's, that's 10 years ago this year. 
uh, and it's a genuinely fantastic job. Um, people often say no two days are the same. I wouldn't necessarily say that, but there's always something different which gets thrown at you, essentially. Uh, and it's a question sometimes of the, the analogy I use is spinning plates, uh, essentially keeping as many plates spinning as possible. Uh, but uh, it, it's, it's never a job which is dull. It's never a job which is without challenge. Has your chemistry background helped in any way specifically in your time as uh, I would chief executive I would in all honesty say um, I could probably make a very tenuous link between the ability to be objective and analytical and research but frankly no to be perfectly honest what I what I would actually say is the only area where it probably has helped is in uh, gathering lots of information and and trying to make sense of it in fairly quick order to be perfectly honest but that's that's more of a general kind of scientist thing than a than a chemistry thing and you recently came back from CinemaCon in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. uh, what were your highlights from the... It's a five-day event, isn't it's, it? It's, it's a four-day event, four. um, essentially, in Las Vegas, which sounds very glamorous, but as I've said to other people, you see so little of Vegas itself that for most of the time you might as well be in a porter cabin in Acton as much as in, uh, as much as in Sin City. Um, strangely enough, I think for a number of people... You know, the, the U.S. market very closely resembles the U.K. market at the moment. You know, the U.S. had a very good year last year. They're looking forward to maybe an even better year this year. Um, we've got over the hump of the change in technology to digital technology, and now we're understanding better what it can do and how it can work for audiences. Um, so, so there is there is that kind of shared positivity uh, and. Equally, the studios at CinemaCon show their upcoming film slates, and there was, you know, kind of confidence of uh, a very strong set of film slates going forward. But oddly, I think for for those of us who saw it, the the, the biggest takeout was it was one around technology. Um, cinema, despite all of its changes, has for over a century relied on a projected image from a projector onto a screen, and at least two technology companies in Vegas showed for the first time um, LED screens, which are essentially, I'm sure this is not the way they would market it, but very large TV screens. But they are of a size and a clarity and a brightness, which was frankly breathtaking. And you know, the phrase game changer is often used and slightly misused. But you know, even uh, slightly, you know, kind of long in the tooth cinema veterans who saw it generally said, you know, if they can get a business model which is affordable, this is a game changer for the industry. Um, and, you know, it overcomes a number of issues, not least the continuing complaint from customers that screens are sometimes, you know, not as bright as they might be, the picture's not as sharp as it might be. So obviously in that um, realm, the newest development is laser mm -hmm. projection. Is it a leap forward from that? It's, 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 it's almost a different path, to be honest, and no pun intended there. I mean, laser is uh, an absolute step forward in the the current path which is to use a light source to drive an image onto a screen through projection and laser brings with it a number of benefits you know the key benefits which are clearly audience benefits are much brighter pictures much greater clarity and a much broader palette of colors uh, and and it's one of those things which is quite difficult to describe but when you see it you understand it um, the, the challenge with laser at the moment is, is, is both cost 
although that has come down markedly in the last few years, but also some of the additional requirements around laser in terms of cooling systems, etc., etc. So it will be currently something which isn't even with a, a deep pockets available to a, a boutique cinema, for example, on reasons of space. Um, the LED screens, which are you know probably some way away from the market just yet, maybe two or three years, um, don't come with those kind of considerations. They come with other considerations. So currently, you know, if you go into a cinema and you happen to brush against the screen, it's not the end of the world. Uh, if you go into a cinema and you brush against an LED screen, it's not the end of the world for you. For you, end of the world for you. But in terms of damaging the screen and costing the cinema a huge amount of money, it is, and, and clearly that's not sustainable as a business model. But for the audiences, I think it will be a, a massively different experience. I'm actually intrigued because it was announced this week that James Cameron's avatar has now been pushed back to 2020. So he's obviously waiting for some incredible new mm -hmm. technology to be available before he releases the latest Avatar film. And do you think those things could be linked? I, th I think I think certainly in terms of brightness and, and colour depth, yes. Um, the one thing that the uh, LED screen manufacturers haven't yet cracked and the one thing which we know Mr Cameron is very keen on is 3D. So at the moment, there is no 3D capability within his LED screens. Um, these people are big enough and bright enough and have uh, access to resources enough that they will get there, to be perfectly honest. But I think, you know, both with the original Avatar, uh, which we don't yet call Avatar 1, but I'm sure we will one day, um, and, and, with, and with other elements of James Cameron's work, he's been a key driver of technology rather than just a recipient of it, to be perfectly honest. So my guess is there is some connection because uh, he is you know, clearly voraciously aware of what else is happening in the broader ecology and he'll be as aware of these screens as anyone. I actually read that he's looking into making the Avatar sequels 3D but without the requirement of 3D mm -hmm. glasses. Is that something you saw potential for at CinemaCon? Um, I've not seen Probably for two or three years, I've, I've not seen a system which is glassless, and clearly for a whole variety of reasons, that's almost the kind of holy grail of 3D, to be perfectly honest. The challenge with glassless 3D is that it's always in the past had quite limited viewing angles. So um, if you're not almost kind of face on with the screen, then because of the way that the 3D image currently is, 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 is constructed, uh, you don't get a very um, effective 3D image. But I do understand that you know, there are technologies emerging uh, currently in, in, uh, in, in actually the, 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 the gaming market, which, which offer uh, a much more effective uh, 3D experience without glasses. And clearly uh, that will be something which, you know, kind of uh, changes the rules of the game in terms of, in terms of 3D and cinema, which is, which is probably challenged by a number of things, but, but not least by people's willingness to have a pair of glasses on their nose for two, two and a half hours uh, during a film. Moving on to Cinema First, uh, you are part of the Cinema mm -hmm. First, which is the panel comprised of the UK's distribution and exhibitor community. What's your role within Cinema First? So Cin Cinema First has been around in various incarnations for, for, for a couple of decades. And, and it originally, in its original incarnation, was established uh, with a view to being a, a body which drove or promoted cinema going, it says generically, but what we mean by that is actually cinema going as a good thing to do, regardless of whether someone was going to see a Disney film or a Fox film, or whether regardless of someone was going to see an Odeon, going to an Odeon cinema or a Cineworld cinema, etc. And, and that role 
arose at the time because uh, although cinema was certainly coming back from its its, its doldrums in the mid eighties, um, it wasn't really hitting the heights that it was expected to. Um, the, the the first key output of that was the was the Orange Wednesdays deal uh, in in the early to early to mid nineties, um, and. To be perfectly honest, the, the income raised from that has allowed what is now Cinema First to, 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 to fund a number of things, be their own piracy or youth audiences. Um, Cinema First now is, is overseeing the, the Meerkat Movies promotion, which has been with us now for, for two years this month. But there's, there's currently thinking about um, whether having such a powerful group which brings together the key cinema operators and the key studios should, should perhaps take a bigger role or a broader role in terms of promoting cinema going, you know, as successful as Meerkat Movies is and as successful as we want it to be, it alone will never be the thing which gets us to where we want to be in terms of emissions and box office. And currently there's a lack of any other forum for the interested parties to all come together and have a conversation which isn't driven by what's best for Disney and what's best for Odeon and what's best for Company A or Company Y, but what's best for the industry. So my role on, 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 on the board of Cinema First, uh, sitting alongside um, Odeon, View, Cineworld, Showcase and Empire, who are the five largest cinema operators in the UK, but also my members, my role is essentially to represent all of the other operators. And, and you know, we speak with a, with a collective voice on behalf of cinema operation. You know, one of the things which makes my, my day job doable never say easy, I'll say doable, uh, and one of the things which typifies the industry is that regardless of whether you're a multiplex operator or a single site operator, regardless of whether you're a, uh, a boutique cinema or maybe a more basic cinema operation, the business model is broadly the same uh, and, 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 and the concerns and the constraints are broadly the same. So there are very few issues on which there is significant difference of opinion from cinema operator to cinema operator. Okay, so what's your assessment of uh, well, what your current assessment of the Compare the Market partnership? Where are we at, at the moment? We had T Tanya Eastman on from Cinema First sure. about a year ago, and it was going in the right direction. Is that still the case? Absolutely, absolutely, still, still the case. And, and I would say what we've seen probably over the last nine months or so is, is an acceleration in the program. Um, w we often uh, forget that when Compare the Market came into the room with us probably around three years ago. They were completely new to the cinema business, indeed to the film business. And so, and so they've been on a very steep learning curve, both in terms of how to work with what's often a quite complex business. You know, they, they had never really had to work with another business partner before in terms of their promotion, but also in terms of what the relationships are, for example, between an individual studio and the talent which features in the films released by that individual studio. And I think what has happened over the, over the last nine months is, is, you know, cinema first to become very much more adept, sorry, um, compare the market, have become very much more adept at utilizing those relationships, at, as draw, at drawing on the, 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 the diverse aspects of the film slate. So, you know, last summer, we saw them run a, a six weeks of summer campaign, which drew on a broad range of films from Finding Dory to the BFG to Trolls to Ice Age, et cetera, et cetera, and, and, and really provide a much broader platform on which those films could 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 fly to be honest and and I, I don't think it's unrelated to that that we had a, a very strong summer when it came to the family slate but what they are doing I think now is they're really uh, and I mean this is a positive uh, 
beginning to leverage their relationships with the studios and with you know colleagues on my side, the cinema operators, in a more effective way. So the number of uh, free tickets given away uh, through the promotion has essentially doubled in a year. And, and we know that the greater the volume of free tickets given away, uh, the, the, the greater the level of, of additional custom for us, the greater the level of people who are going to cinema through the promotion who wouldn't otherwise have gone on any other day, which is you know money into the bottom line of the industry, which wouldn't otherwise be there. It has been a big learning experience mm-hmm. for, uh, for Compare the Market. But uh, as I said to Tanya, when I went to their offices, they are completely committed to cinema. They've really gone Absolutely. for it in a big way. Absolutely. Uh, moving on now, someone might have read this. I certainly did. In a recent letter published in The Guardian, uh, in response to an article entitled Go Full Screen, Can Hollywood Ever Fight Back Against Netflix? You offered an impassioned defense of cinema. Uh, for those who haven't seen the letter, how do you view the often raised Vod versus cinema dis- mm-hmm. uh, argument. The letter was prompted by one of what's become a, a, a slightly wearying series of news items, which basically does one of two things. Well, does one or both of two things? It either predicts the demise of cinema, or it links that to the rise of Netflix. Um, and 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 certainly that you know we've talked about the numbers for the quarter, first quarter of this year, and we talked about last year, and we talked about looking ahead. There is nothing which suggests anything other than that cinema in the UK and globally is going from strength to strength. So the first part of that premise is mistaken. The second part is that Netflix is in some way a threat to cinema. And and the point I made in 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 the letter that was published uh, more 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 out of sorrow than anger was that. Um, If you speak to most cinema operators, they do not see Netflix as the competition. They see other out-of-home experiences of the competition, um, but they do not see Netflix as competition for the out-of-home immersive experience which cinema offers. If Netflix is competition to anyone, it is competition to other home experiences. Uh, And certainly, you know... Um, you know, companies like Sky Movies and others, uh, and Amazon Prime, etc., etc. You know, they're part of the same competitive, sca- competitive set as Netflix. But no one should see the rise of Netflix as a threat to to cinema operation. And it's very notable that you know one of the key things which uh, the head of Netflix is always uh, banging on about is his desire to get his films into cinemas. Um, so it's not necessarily an either or. It might be an and in their case. And I see it, it, Netflix is same as part of the same ecosystem. It, Netflix encourages interest in film. If a film's coming out at the cinema this year, yeah. I mean, it's no surprise that in the last couple of months, Kingsman the Secret Service has appeared on Netflix mm-hmm. because Kingsman the Golden Circle is coming out in cinemas in September. And so that will drive a whole range of new fans who maybe didn't catch the first film in the cinema to the cinema on the second occasion. I, I mean, I would, I, would, I would agree with that 100%. You know, that there is absolutely no doubt that anything which gets people children, young people, adults, older people watching films is good for the, legally, is good for the cinema industry. I mean, I'll, I'll give an example. So I talked about cinema first and I talked about the things that that organization has done. One of the things it's done over the last four years is it's funded an organization called Interfilm, which is a uh, essentially a youth agency for film, which, which seeks to engage as many 5 to 19-year-olds as possible in watching, making and understanding film. Now, one of the strands of that, funded by the cinema industry, 
are a series of film clubs in schools whereby uh, children, young people watch film on DVD or download uh, and then talk about it and understand it. Now, it might seem slightly uh, counterintuitive for the cinema industry to fund kids watching uh, films on, on DVD or download. But all the evidence we have, and we do look at it very closely, is that uh, children and young people who are exposed to the film club uh, experience are much, much more likely then to become cinema goers, essentially. And given the number of different things that children and young people have to potentially spend their time and their money on, the more we can do to uh, get an early engagement and attachment to film, the better, through whatever means, whether it's cinema, DVD, download, Netflix or whatever. It's all good for us in the long term. Now, you've mentioned, um, we've talked about the opportunities for cinema and growing admissions. Now, I've had a number of uh, people from the major exhibitors in, in that very chair, uh, Justin Skinner from Cineworld, Andy Edge from Odeon, uh, Crispin Lilly from Everyman. How do you see cinema admissions in the UK getting up towards the 200 million mark? What needs to change? I think there are a number of current trends which offer us um, hope that that is achievable. I think we are still, frankly, in, in the early stages of learning what the flexibility afforded to us by digital technology can achieve. So the example I always give is that if, if, if one of your listeners went into a cinema in the UK 10 years ago, then the, the film that was playing at 11 o'clock in the morning was almost certainly going to be the film that was playing at 11 o'clock at night and through the day. And that was because actually changing the film on the screen was such a laborious process that it, it, was, it was rarely worth the bother, if I can use that phrase. In a digital world, cinemas are much better able to um, move films from screen to screen and, and move films within screen. So it's much easier, it's essentially a drag and a drop on a laptop, it's much easier to play a kid's film in the morning, family film in the afternoon, thriller in the evening, horror film late at night, to take a slightly basic example. So we're much better able to draw on different audiences rather than, you know, kind of uh, giving audiences a take it or leave it approach when it comes to programming. Apologies, I just sneezed. Everyone. No worries. No worries. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. just glad it was a sneeze. <laughs> um, but the, the so, so what we're already seeing, you know, and we're probably only kind of three or four years into a fully digital sector, is that cinemas are showing a much larger number of films now than they did in an analog age. Okay, so we're seeing that impact on uh, reach of audience. We're seeing that impact in terms of box office. What we're also seeing, and it's 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 a growing trend, you know, um, uh, every man. A showcase an audience recent announcement is is what you might call the kind of premiumization of, of cinema so investment in recliners investment in uh, sofas investment in a higher-end food and beverage offer um, which basically um, appeals I think to people who are arguably more affluent but also people who 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 are driven as much by the experiences by the film I know that might be slightly heretical, but I think I think that's true. And again, that is something which uh, is 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 seen to drive audiences, um, and the, you know the experience of the, those companies that have, um, have have taken that step. The, the multiplex companies quite often they've reduced capacity in their cinemas by significant numbers, but they've increased occupancy. You know the number of people who are filling seats by, by even more significant numbers. And, and so I think there's something there in terms of the experience. 
you can't ignore the contribution of the film Slate here. You know, we're essentially a restaurant where someone else um, picks the menu to a degree or at least brings the, brings the ingredients to the table. Um, and again, I think, although it, you know, it has its detractors, the, 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 the increasing trend for the major studios to date films two or three years ahead, again, gives customers confidence in terms of the long-term quality of what's on offer. So all of those things are coming together, I think, to give us a greater sense that we can make a step change in admissions. Because from, from the mid 80s, where, where, where admissions were in the kind of mid 50 millions, up to the early 1990s, where we got to 165, 170 million, admissions have remained broadly stable since then. You know, they've gone up or down by five or six million per year. Now, you know, Given the other changes in terms of demographics and technology and leisure opportunities for people, that probably should be viewed as a success. But given the amount of investment that's gone into the sector, particularly in the last three or four years, everyone's got a huge appetite to kick on in terms of admissions. And I think I think the 200 million mark is is is, is a is a reasonable ambition. You know, not this year, not next year, but hopefully over the next three, four, five years, we should see steps towards that where 180 million, 190 million admission year becomes achievable rather than something which currently sits far above what we can what we can achieve so we're coming to the end of the podcast now what's next for you and the uk cinema association over the coming months i think i think we we've we've sought over the last few years to to increase um uh our connection with 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 our smaller operators um because we're in a a vastly different environment now than we were five or six years ago. Uh, and I'll explain what I mean by that. So five or six years ago, when, when many of our members had uh, 35 millimeter projectors um, and, and, and good uh, serviceable sound systems, they were really only required to maintain those at a level which you know continued to provide the best possible experience for customers. As we've now moved into a digital age, and there are analogies here with people's experience in the home, the number of different developments that are possible, the number of different investment decisions that might be required for better sound, better seating, better lights, different types of lights, different types of projection, etc., etc., has accelerated massively. And so we're very conscious that some of our smaller operators, uh, which is probably the majority of our membership, may not have the networks and the 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 bandwidth, frankly, to understand what the implications of all of those things are. So our role as a, I hesitate to use the phrase, but I will, as a kind of trusted guide for our members, I think will increase. We're not the people to make business decisions for them, A, a, a due to lack of expertise and B, because uh, it's not what we do. But we, we will continue to grow networks between operators and between ourselves and operators. Um, and, and, you know, when I say, Otherwise, it's essentially more of the same. That's not in any way to, you know, kind of downplay uh, the variety and the richness of what we do. Um, different changes in the sector, as I say, the premiumization of, of cinema, um, the, the changes in ownership, consolidation within the market, all present, you know, different opportunities and challenges for us as a trade association to do what we are set up to do, which is to trumpet the, the value of the cinema-going experience. And you will be at Cine Europe in... June, if 
people listening want to attend? I absolutely will. So, so Cine Europe is the largest uh, gathering of European uh, cinema professionals. Um, it's around three and a half thousand people. It's 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 for four days in Barcelona in June. I can think of no um, finer place to be, frankly. And, and it is a, it's a, it's a mix of slate presentations from both the major U.S. studios, but also a significant number of European distributors. Um, a vast trade show where we'll no doubt see a whole range of technological developments, and then panels and seminars where we talk about the kind of key issues, opportunities and threats which, which, which are presented to the European industry. We'll wrap the podcast up there. Thank you for joining me, Phil. Absolutely. I will be back next month. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And if you are the person in San Salvador, San Salvador just drop me an email. It'd be great to hear from you. I'll be back next month. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.